If you have a copy of the scriptures, open to John chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, but you're not really familiar with it, you're not really sure where, where kind of things are in it. So we're in the, uh, John, which is in the New Testament. So the second half of the Bible. Uh, so if you kind of open and get to the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're in the 19th chapter of John this morning. Um, and this is an incredible passage. Uh, to be honest, I had a really hard time trying to narrow it down um, because the truth is there's really multiple sermons that could be pulled out of this short text that Sam read so beautifully just a moment ago. In it, we're going to see this morning there's, there's prophecy that's fulfilled, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit, uh, that there's a promise in there, but this passage is so rich because it's the very center of our faith. So if you're uh, kind of wondering what Christians are all about, what Christianity is all about, what, what, what we believe about God, you're going to see really this morning uh, just the very center of our faith. So it's kind of tough to focus in on just one thing, but we're going to look really at one phrase uh, primarily, and in fact, in the original language, it's actually just one word. So last week, uh, if you were here, Pastor Brian laid out for us this kind of upside-down version of power, and Pilate, uh, who, who was there with Jesus, had been kind of operating in this scene as though he had all the power and control, uh, and Jesus really sets him straight, and what he tells him is, like, you don't have any power over me uh, except for what I give you, and here's what you should do with your power lay it down for the good of others. And that's what Jesus does. He lays it down for the good of the world and the glory of God. So here's the, here's the scene, uh, kind of kind of bring you up to speed on what we're going to get into in just a moment here in John chapter 19. Jesus has been arrested, uh, and it's really a, a mockery of a, a, a trial. There's so many things that are just wrong about the trial. Um, and, and, but this trial includes him being ridiculed, and beaten, he's flogged, he's whipped with, with what's called a cat of nine tails, so a long leather whip that has uh, nine strands on the end, and the nine strands would be embedded with things like bone or glass or metal, and the torturer, the person, the soldier who would whip him would be special, specially trained to be able to uh, hit the, the victim in such a way that the nine tails would actually wrap around. So they would get whipped and the, it would wrap around their flesh. And as they would yank back, it would pull pieces of flesh off of the bone of the person who's being whipped. That has happened to Jesus. Uh, he's mocked. Brian talked about the crown of thorns, the purple robe that is put on him. He's beaten. He's spit on. He's ridiculed in all of this. He's stripped naked, and now he has carried a heavy crossbeam out of town to a garbage dump named Golgotha. The Latin word is Calvary, and, and it is there that his bloody and disfigured body is nailed to a crossbeam. If, if you've seen pictures of crucifixion. Maybe you've seen people where they're just kind of tied up to a cross. That wasn't what they did uh, with Jesus. If you, if you ever feel in between these two bones here on your wrist, what are they called, the radius and the ulna? Any? Yeah? Okay. I took a bi biology class in, uh, when I was a junior in high school. It's still working out for me. So they would take a heavy spike uh, and they would nail in between those two bones because the last thing that they would want for something to, ha they wouldn't want you to slide off the cross or to fall 
off of the cross. So he's nailed to this cross beam. He's, he's raised up between two thieves in what is a humiliating and just obscene display. It's such a gruesome spectacle uh, that the Romans would only crucify lower-class citizens. If you were an upper-class citizen or a high-class citizen, even if you committed a crime that was worthy of crucifixion, they just wouldn't do it to you because it was reserved only for the lowest uh, class citizen in the, in the Roman world. The, the Romans are not the ones who invented crucifixion. They say it was probably the Persians. Um, but the Romans, in a sense, perfected it. They were, they were, they were, uh, this was their, this was their specialty. It, it was such a barbaric and cruel form of punishment. It was the most undignified form of punishment that they could think of at that time. And most ancient writers wouldn't even want to write about crucifixion. The, the gospel writers uh, are, are unique in that they spend more time writing about the crucifixion than any other writers. And ultimately, the way that you would die from crucifixion was suffocation. So your body has been beaten, bloody, shredded. Uh, they, they say that it, Jesus was unrecognizable. He was so disfigured. And, and you would be pinned up like this, and, and you would struggle for breath. And the only way to do it would be to kind of pull yourself up. Sometimes they would put a little, uh, like a little stump on the cross where you could kind of sit on it, because they didn't want you to they didn't want you to die too quickly. They wanted you to have enough uh, just kind of energy so it would prolong the torture. And so when we're reading the scene and we're seeing these things that Jesus says, every moment that he would have to pull himself up to be able to say the words was excruciating because he would have his shredded back rubbing up against this harsh wooden cross. Every time he wanted to breathe, every time he had something that he had to say, he'd have to kind of pull himself up by the nails that were in his wrists. John 19, verse 25, says this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, which most scholars think it's John, the very John who wrote this account, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. There's a really special bond uh, that I don't understand because I can't understand it uh, between mothers and sons. Uh, and, I, and I watch my uh, wife with our eight-year-old son, and I have to tell her all the time, listen, you need to stop ruining this boy. Like, you're spoiling him. You're, you're ruining this boy. He's got to be a man. I know he's only eight, but he's got to man up. Stop being a mama's boy. Uh, and, then, and then she looks at me, and my two daughters get literally whatever they ask for me. So I, I kind of get it. Um, but I want you to imagine, if you will, the bond between Jesus and his mother, Mary. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, Mary, when she was a teenager, was visited by an angel. 
And Mary heard from heaven that she was favored. And Mary uh, gave birth to the Son of God in a cave because there was no room for her anywhere else. And the scripture says uh, Mary was a, was a ponderer. She pondered all the things that she heard um, spoken over her and spoken over this baby. Um, things like what Simeon said about her son in the temple. In Luke chapter 2, Simeon said over Jesus, God, I have seen your salvation, which you've prepared for all people. He's a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He's been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. And as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. I just, I just think about how many times Mary, as she was watching her firstborn son, this miracle baby, literal miracle baby, how many times she would ponder what was said over him as she watched him grow. And now, in this scene, which is unimaginable agony and pain, we really can't even get our heads and our hearts around um, what is in her mind and what's in her heart as she sits at the feet of this humiliating, excruciating, execution of her innocent son. And I'm not trying to be dramatic just for the sake of being dramatic, but we have to stop and we have to sit at the cross. We can't turn away from the difficulty of the cross. Oftentimes it's something that we just want to kind of push through or we want to get past, but we, we have to sit at the cross. We have to endure at the cross because Jesus endured at the cross. There's so many layers of pain at the cross of Christ. There's the physical suffering, which is horrific. There's this emotional pain. There's the spiritual reality of Jesus burying the, the full weight of sins of the world, past, present, and future. And then in that, God sees Mary, his mother, and he labors to speak to her and calls attention to her and John. And Jesus is not just telling them what he hopes will happen. He, what he's doing here is he's giving his last will and, and testament. He's establishing community. He's establishing family at the cross. John is elevated to brother to, to care for Mary. Here's now your mother. This is your son. The cross is making you family with me and with one another. It's language that's oriented towards uh, the, the old Jewish laws of adoption. And with his last few breaths, Jesus makes his will known. Look at verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty and a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Something that John, as we've been working through this gospel account, has told us all along and has been reminding us is that Jesus knows what his mission is. Jesus has always known. None of this is a surprise. None of this is shock. Jesus was fully aware of what his life and what his death would be. Now, imagine, if you would, knowing your whole life what kind of death that you would, that you would have. I mean, how does this not dominate 
every waking moment of Jesus' life. I mean, I, I can barely sleep the night before a dentist appointment. Jesus knows exactly what he's gonna endure. And I think about all the interactions that Jesus would have had over his life and all these pithy things, all these things, all the, all the times that he was interrupted. Oh, I'm really sorry, you ran out of wine at your wedding. Do you know what kind of death I'm gonna have? Do you know what kind of excruciating pain I'll go through? But yeah, I'll make you some more wine. The scripture tells us that the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus as he walked the earth. He carried in his 175-pound body all the purpose and plans of God, the omniscience of God wrapped in human flesh, the entire mind of God, knowing everything that would happen to him. You see, Jesus carried his cross in private before he ever carried it in public. Verse 28 tells us that Jesus thirsted. If you remember in John chapter 4, it's Jesus who says to the Samaritan woman, he says, I have for you living water. You'll never thirst again. In John 7, Jesus stands up with a loud voice. The scripture says he shouts this out. Everyone who's thirsty, come to me. And now here we're seeing the living water is thirsty. What's happening here uh, is full of prophetic imagery. That's one of the beautiful things about the Bible uh, is how connected it is from start to finish. And, and, and what's happening in this picture here, you got to get the visual. Um, I know you've kind of seen renderings or pictures where Jesus is on a cross and he's like way up there. But in reality, uh, his feet would have really only been about three feet off the ground. And so there's soldiers there, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of walking around, they're doing a thing that the scripture says at one point, they kind of gamble for Jesus's clothes and, you know, they would continue in their mocking and their uh, continue ridiculing these other uh, prisoners and, and the thieves who were there. And then, of course, there's a ton of people who are, are just kind of wailing and they, and they can't even believe what they're seeing. And then there's other people who are in the crowd who are just jeering and mocking, if you can even imagine that. There's a shredded human up there and they're just continuing to ridicule and trying to humiliate them. The Roman soldiers would have with them or near them uh, a, a sour wine. This was kind of like the common everyday wine. This is like the Trader Joe's two buck chuck there that they'd have. And it would be for the soldiers to drink kind of as they're torturing these victims. And uh, the soldiers hear Jesus say, I thirst. They reach over, they suck, they take a, a sponge uh, that sucks up the wine, uh, and then they put it on the end of a hyssop branch, and they put the wine to the mouth of Jesus. Now, here's where this connects to the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, it says this, it says, Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on top and on both sides of the door frame of your home. And none of you shall go out the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on, on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over the doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. 
So there's very specific directions and instructions given to the Israelites during Passover. And, and what's happening here in John chapter 19, it's a symbolic reenactment of the Passover. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Passover, here's what was happening at the Passover in, in, in the Exodus. Uh, God, through a man named Moses, was calling for the release of his people, the Hebrews, from slavery from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh just was not getting the message. So the final sign was that the firstborn sons of all households who did not have the blood of an unblemished land on the tops and on the sides of the doorframe would be killed. So they would take this lamb, slaughter it. They were careful. There were specific instructions. Don't break any of its bones. Drain the blood into a basin. And then specifically with a hyssop branch. So you're seeing the connection there. They would essentially apply or paint the the, the tops and the sides of their door friends of their homes, and then they would back into their homes, and, and, and all who did have the blood on their door frame, would, death would pass over their family, and those people who were covered by the blood would be spared. And, and, and if you remember in John, John's already told us that Jesus is the lamb, and Jesus is the door, so here we have in John 19, in this moment, the spilled blood of the lamb and all who are behind the covered door will be saved. Verse 30, as we end, it says this. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So again, the scene here, Jesus has been on the cross since about 9 a.m. It's about 3 p.m. now, so you have about six hours of just agony. Jesus has said to Mary, behold your son, to John, behold your mother, and then he says, I thirst, and after it touches the, the mouth of Jesus, and there's a lot of reasons why people think that Jesus in that moment took that wine, because if you know the story, there's other places in the scripture where like, well, I thought he was offered uh, wine before and he didn't take it. That was a different kind of wine. It was a mingled wine that would basically kind of um, serve as, as, as kind of medicine to kind of numb Jesus and to numb his mind. He didn't take that. He takes this. Um, it could just be very simply uh, because he's so parched. And, and Psalm 22, uh, the prophetic psalm about this moment, talks about how my, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. My mouth is so dry. And it could have been that Jesus took uh, the wine to his mouth because he wanted to make sure that he got his next words out as clear as he could. And so that everybody could hear exactly what he had to say, and he makes this announcement, it is finished. In our English language, it takes three words. Jesus wasn't speaking English on the cross. In the Greek, it's one word, tetelestai, tetelestai, which by its tense means it is finished, it will always be finished, and you cannot unfinish it. In the Hebrew Bible of, of Society of Israel, the word is nishlam, the passive root of shalom, which means peace has been made, wholeness has been 
achieved. It's not a cry of defeat. It's a claim of accomplishment, triumph, extreme victory. It's completely fulfilled. And then the scripture says that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The order is important because he bowed first and he gave up his spirit. If you've ever been around somebody in their kind of last moments and their dying moments, there's typically a big kind of exhale and then their head slumps. But that's not what happened here. He bows his head first and then gives up his spirit. And he's not praying because everywhere else you see Jesus in the book of John, he's staring into heaven, almost as if he can see exactly into heaven when he's, he's praying. He's submitting. He's worshiping. In this moment, Jesus takes a, a final bow of absolute submission to his Father's will. Jesus, one commentator says this, in this moment, Jesus promised solemnly in his last incarnate word and deed the gifts of both his finished atonement and of his empowering spirit to his believing church, church gathered beneath him for the sake of his believing world scattered beyond him and them. And Jesus says to his spirit, the spirit that has been stuffed into this fleshly body that got sleepy got tired and hungry and beaten and bruised and spit on, you're dismissed. And when all had been accomplished, Jesus declares victory. Jesus declares mission accomplished. It is finished. And because it is finished, church, we are not. And what we believe as Christians about the cross is that where Jesus came to the end of his journey, we come to the beginning of ours. The last word of, word of Jesus in his death is the first word for us in our new life. Where he died, we came to life. And our hope and salvation and worship, everything we got and everything we celebrate when we gather is all rooted in the last word of Jesus because without that word, we don't have any songs to sing. Without that word, we don't have any reason to come together. Everything Jesus set out to do, he's done. Everything Jesus intended to do for you, he's done. In a garbage dump, outside the city, between two thieves, a body shredded, the Son of God, humiliated, ridiculed, speaks the most powerful word that could ever be spoken over you to tell us that. It is finished. Okay, so with the next few moments that we have left, what is what is finished? I, I heard this preached about uh, a, a few years ago, and it was just so helpful for me, and it's really stuck with me. So I just want to kind of share that with you as we, as we close here. There's four things that are finished at the cross. So if you're wondering, okay, like, that's the last thing he said. Why is that so important? There's four things that are so important. If, if you're a Christian, you want to hear these things, and, and you can say it out loud, amen, that's allowed in this church, uh, or you can just kind of hold that in your heart, that's fine too. Uh, if you're not a Christian and you're kind of wondering, like, why do people get so excited about the cross, you're going to hear it. There's four things that were finished at the cross. The first thing is the old system of religion is finished. 
The, the, the system of religion is finished. Any religious system by which we try to figure out a way to make ourselves good enough to get to God is over, is done. In the Old Testament, God was preparing a way for Jesus, so he set up a sacrificial system that started when he brought his people out of Egypt at that Passover that I mentioned earlier. And from that moment onward, the Jewish people never stopped every year to celebrate what happened at Passover. Every year they would come into Jerusalem and they would go to the temple, they would take their spotless lamb without blemish, and that would become the Passover lamb. And the lamb was a way of saying to God, God, we know that we have fallen way short of your perfect standard and your commandments over our lives, but we offer this lamb so that you would pass over our sin for this year and we'll be back next year to do the same thing. And so year after year, this system, God's system, was the way that people would have hope from God. And when Jesus said, it is finished during the Passover, when everyone is scrambling to find an unblemished lamb to sacrifice, the lamb of God, bleeding for the sins of the world on the cross, says, it is finished. When he spoke to Telestai and what he did the system of trying to make ourselves good enough for God is finished. The religious system, done. The scripture tells us that when Jesus died, the skies turned black, there was an earthquake that rumbled everything, and in the temple, there's a curtain, the veil, that separated the holy of holies. So the most holy place in the temple, where they said the, the presence of God was, that curtain tore from top to bottom, and it's now open, which is God's way of saying, look, this was a good system, but the system has always been pointing to a savior. And now the Savior has finished what the Savior came to do. And the work of the Savior is now accomplished. It's finished. And so listen, it's no longer about a system. It's no longer about a system of you trying to earn God's approval and earn God's favor and just hope, hope. I hope I've done enough good. I hope I've done enough right. No, there's only one who's done enough and it's finished. It's not about a system, it's about a savior. So if you're on a path to try to figure out how do I get to God, uh, good news, it's finished. Because you can't do enough to get to God, which is why God had to come to you. Because religious systems don't get us to God. The Savior alone brings us into a relationship with God. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 says, says this. First, Christ said, you do not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. He's just saying, like, it's not the thing. Then he said, look, I've come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, not by all these other sacrifices once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, who is Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. 
There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Jesus didn't come just to abolish an old system. He came to fulfill it. And where we couldn't be holy, he was. Where we couldn't be perfect, he was. So the first thing, the system is finished. The second thing is that sin is finished. Sin is finished. Rebellion against the holy God. The scripture says that the wages or the payment for our sin and, and that all of us have, have sinned, but that payment is death. We've all earned death. That's what's due us, both physical death and spiritual death and destiny cut off from God forever, which is hell. And the gospel is not, well, we've done some bad things and Jesus makes us good. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you are dead. You're dead, totally incapable of anything to bring yourself to life. That's a huge problem. Dead people can't do anything to improve their condition on their own. Something outside of themselves must miraculously work on their behalf to bring them to life. Jesus did not come from heaven to earth on a self-improvement mission. He came to rescue those who were dead and headed to the grave forever. Now, does knowing Jesus make your life better? Absolutely, absolutely. But Jesus came to do the one thing you needed the most, to bring you from death to life. The gospel is that sin, your offense against the holy God, makes you dead, but Jesus comes to bring you from death to life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. The, the sin's power is, is, is death. And Jesus on the cross says, all of your sin was put on me. My innocent life took on all your offense and all your sin and all your guilt. Jesus didn't die for his sin. He died for yours and he died for mine. He didn't pay the penalty of, of, of his life of rebellion, but for your life of rebellion and my life of rebellion. Sin did to Jesus what it should have done to you and what it should have done to, to me, it, it killed him. Jesus died. He, di he didn't fake die. He didn't just pass out. He like for real died so that Jesus could say to us, sin and what sin can do to you is finished. Romans chapter five, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, actively rebellious against him. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. This is the story of the gospel. Not that we are good even though we want to become everything that God wants for us to be and be changed more and more into the image of Jesus and have our lives look like his life in every way. But our story is ultimately, we were dead and now we are alive. 
there should be a little bit more joy in the room, but it's, it's early, so. You were dead. And Christian, now you're not dead. There you go. When you have to ask for it, it makes it so much more special. And listen, all the people just hollered there, they don't holler just because they're like better than the people who aren't clued in on this. They holler because of Jesus. Because you do not go from death to life on your own. It's only because of him. The power of sin, the power of death is broken. Third thing, we gotta move quick. Shame is finished. The good news is that sin is finished. That's true. That's a theological reality for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. But the practical outworking of that is seated in our understanding of that and in our living in and out of that. We have all kinds of baggage and the enemy, the deceiver, knows that the power of sin is broken, but he can still remind you of your past and bring the stigma of your sin on your life. Guilt, condemnation, shame, which so many of us embrace and they become defining words for so many people. What God is saying to his kids, you do not have to carry the burden of those things because they were all dealt with fully and finally on the cross of Jesus. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6 it gives this picture. Then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed for I'm a sinful man. He's in the presence of the Lord. He said, I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's arm. Then one of the seraphim, so this angelic being, flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs, and he touched my lips with it, and he said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. When Jesus said to tell us die, he was bringing this vision of Isaiah into real time and saying, I am now becoming your sin and condemnation and shame. And with it, I am dying for your sin. And with it, the condemnation and the guilt and the shame is all on me. So when I say it is finished, your guilt and condemnation and shame are finished for good. Jesus is saying, for those who are his, you are not defined by the shameful things of your past. It's finished. The, the devil wants to bring up your past all the time. The Holy Spirit speaks of your glorious future. And the reason that we have a future is because Jesus dealt with it. It's finished. The action is complete and the result is ongoing in full effect. Jesus is saying all the work that he has done to take care of your sin, it's all finished. And that ongoing work will continue with full effect all the way into the future. And for some of us today, we need to start with where Jesus ended. And we need to say to the accuser and the deceiver and the enemy, it is finished. When you bring up my shame, to tell us die. It's finished. Last thing. Self is finished. Self is finished. Self was finished at the cross because no one can look up at the cross of Christ and say, you finished all this for me and you brought me from death to life, uh, so now I'm just gonna go live any way that I see fit. No, no, when you see Jesus on the cross saying it's finished, your response is, now I'm finished. Me, my, my, my way. 
doing things my own way, my own agenda, my own preferences. All of that is done because I've seen something so radical and experienced something so life-changing and so much better than what I could ever do on my own. I've heard news that uprooted the self-centeredness and self-focus, and I've been brought into life with God forever. And because of that, I'm a brand new person. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My life is hidden in his. My way is his way. My plans are his plans. My will is his will. This is the power of the gospel, that it can change us from a me and mine people to a yes, Lord, your way, your name, your fame, whatever you want. The gospel ultimately frees us from a tragically fragile and wasted life of doing it all our way. And it breathes into us this epic story that will blow us away. And that happens when we move from a self-centeredness to a Christ-centeredness. We are not a people where all of our lives are all for us. That's not the motto. We are joyfully and gloriously a people where all of our lives are all for Jesus. Because when Jesus said it was finished and he breathed his last, he breathed life into us who believe and he changed everything. What claim can I have on my life when I have to be spoken over to telestai to even live? The only right you have is to be called a son or daughter of God because at just the right time, Christ died for me. The last words of Jesus are his first words for his children. And when he died, we came to life. We're gonna enter into a moment of communion like we do every week here. Uh, there's two um, elements that are near you. There's the bread and, and the cup. The band's gonna come up and they're just gonna lead us out this morning. The rest of John 19 is this. Now it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. None of his bones was broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on at the one they've pierced. So Jesus has died and to bring fulfillment of the prophetic Scripture about him, none of his bones are broken. Out of his side pours blood and water, which points to the humanity of Jesus. It points to the truth of his death, the forgiveness of sins by his blood, with the gift of his Holy Spirit. Authors will say it points to the sacraments of baptism and communion. And what the blood of the Lamb at Israel did for Passover for the people this blood now does for all believers. One time, for all time, the shed blood of Jesus atones for the sins of the world forever, finishing the sacrificial system once and for all 
And this remission of sins is received by simple faith in the great giver of life. John of Damascus said, the Lord made a fountain of forgiveness gush out for us from his sacred and immaculate side, both water unto regeneration and the washing away of sin and destruction and blood as drink productive of life everlasting. When we take the cup, we're confessing that it is only by the blood of Christ that we are forgiven and healed. And if that is your proclamation, then you eat and you drink the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus. If that's not your confession, be warned. Don't think that going through this motion will save you because the bread and the cup will not save you. But they represent the only one who can. And so if you are weary, tired, enslaved, broken, dead, come to Jesus. Because in him you find rest and freedom, life, joy, purpose, hope, love, peace. And so the invitation is open this morning for you to come to the cross of Christ and to put your faith in him and in him alone for the life that he gives. For those of us who have made that confession, we eat and we drink and then we stand and we celebrate because we're no longer dead. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing together.